Well, that's an interesting start to class. <laughs> Hadn't anticipated that one. Uh, uh, thank you guys for being here. I wanted to teach on Paul for a while, and I thought a, a different way to do it might be to look at Paul as a lawyer. I practiced law for almost 35 years now and represented a number of different people. And I thought, wouldn't it have been interesting if I had been a lawyer back in the time of Paul, and when he was arrested in Jerusalem, he had come to me to represent him. Uh, uh, probably could have found a much better lawyer to do it, but let's just say he was stuck and he, and he came to me. What would I have done? How would I have approached his case? And how does it change, perhaps, the perspective on Paul that I have? And so that's the goal of this study. Uh, if it can make it into a book one day, I'll give you a copy of the book. But if not, uh, just know that these lessons are on the internet and uh, can be emailed to you. So you've got them to read either ahead of time or afterwards, in addition to the video posting. Now, I did actually get a real song because we had studied Paul about seven years ago in this class. And the, the last class I had on Paul, uh, we, we played a parody of Happy Trails until we meet again. And since we're meeting Paul again, I thought at a good time uh, we would uh, uh, show it. And so uh, here is your Phil Keggy parody. Back in the saddle again. I'm back in the saddle study of St. Paul we intend. He started out so wrong, but ended up so strong. Back in the saddle again. I'm back in the saddle again. Learning all the facts, let's commence. Paul's faith must impress us as he got it near Damascus. Back in the saddle again. I'm back in the saddle again Back with St. Paul, who's our friend Where the many lost were found as his message spread around Back in the saddle again I'm back in the saddle again Back with St. Paul, who's our friend Where many are kingdom bound as Paul goes town to town Back in the saddle again. I'm back, back in, in the saddle so, again. let's get, yeah, thank you, Phil Keggy, for that. By the way, I believe in early May, Phil's going to be here for our class. And so we'll do kind of an interview of Phil, but we'll make sure he's got his guitar and he's ready to do a few parodies and maybe a few other songs for you. So be looking forward to that. It'll go out in an email, and I'm excited about that. I should be the first Sunday in May. But uh, uh, we'll know a little closer as we get to it. Now, here's the, the, the start for this lesson. Uh, I had a, a, a fella who came to me. He was a, a, a friend, a lawyer. I'm going to call him Jim for this purpose. Jim came to me and he said, I need you to represent me. I've been arrested. And I said, what were you arrested for? He said, I was arrested for driving under the influence. And I said, were you guilty? And he said, no, no, no. And I said, well, tell me what happened. Give me the facts. And so he started telling me. He said he pulled out of his parking garage in a downtown Houston skyscraper, and he got pulled over for going the wrong way down the street. And I said, 
were you going, I, I'm unclear, were you, you saying that you were driving the, the wrong way on a one-way street? Or you were driving like you're from England and you're in the left lane instead of the right lane? He said, neither. He said, I was driving down the sidewalk. I said, all right. And he said, and then the cop pulled me over. And I'm sitting there thinking, how does he pull you over if you're already on the sidewalk? But I just let it go. Said the cop pulled me over. I'm also thinking, this is going to be a hard case. Uh, the cop pulled me over and uh, he wanted me to take a breathalyzer. Now, breathalyzer is where you breathe into this tube and the machine tells you what your blood alcohol level is. You don't have to take a breathalyzer test, by the way. I'm not like here to give you free legal advice, but you don't have to take one. But if you don't take one, they can take you in under a suspicion and you're going, they're going to find out one way or another. But not, not saying take it, not saying don't take it. I'm not giving any legal advice. But Jim didn't take it. So they give him a field sobriety test. And they videotaped him doing things like uh, uh, lift up one leg, take your finger and put it on your nose. But it's a little tougher than that. Close your eyes while you're doing it. Okay? Now, if you're sober, it's still hard. But if you're not sober, you got like very little shot. I mean, it's kind of like. At least that's the way it looked on the video. <clears throat> Walk both feet on a solid line. There's another part of the field sobriety test. And on the video, he wasn't even coming close. And so I said, Jim, this doesn't look like you were very sober. I said, tell me what's going on. I want to know. What did you have to drink that day? Tell me about the couple hours before that. Tell me who was with you who we could call as a witness, and how do you explain this behavior? He said, I'm diabetic, and I was having a diabetic uh, um, episode, and, I, I, and, and you lose coordination, and you lose thinking, and you get fuzzy, and uh, uh, that, that was the problem. So I tried real hard to go through all of the different pieces of evidence that would be part of this and assess it, and then ultimately took the videotape to a doctor who specializes in, in diabetes and diabetes issues and said, does this look like a diabetic episode to you? Or does it look like he's just tanked? Um, that's lawyer terminology for DUI. Um, <clears throat> the doctor looked at it and <laughs> said, I don't know. In fact, the doctor said, let me call in my wife. She actually can do this better than I can. And he called his wife in. His wife was uh, uh, the head of the Juvenile Diabetes Association at the time, and, and she was real tuned in this. I said, what do you think? She said, it could be, but I think he's drunk. And uh, uh, so we, we had the dialogue, proceeded to try and put that case together, and proceeded to try and do something. Now, someone who got the handout realizes in the handout I sent you, I never told anybody how the case turned out, which is really interesting. So here's the background behind the class. And now I want to, in other words, I'm not telling you either. Now I want to transition um, uh, and and. You know, you, you, you've got to understand the evidence because you've got to then give counsel to your client. You've got to be able to say, hey, we can maybe negotiate a plea bargain. 
where in exchange for them dropping the prosecution, you have a reduced penalty, punishment. Or maybe we can do this or that or the other. Or we can fight it all the way to court if you want to, but you need to know if we win, you walk. If we lose, this is the range of penalties. And so you have to sit down and have that conversation with the client, and then you got to get to work. you got to roll up the sleeves, and you just got to get your, your people out there. So here's what I want to do in this series. I want to look at Paul's arrest, and I want to deal with it the way I would as a lawyer. Now, I'm going to give you some assignments, perhaps, as we go along, because every lawyer needs some good legal assistance. So I'll give you a few assignments if you want to help me out. But by and large, you come to the class and I'll walk through it. And I believe that you will see some aspects of Paul that you'll not only learn from, but will heighten your faith and your confidence in what you believe. Paul, to me, is one of the key reasons I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so I want to tell you about it. And, and so we're going to handle this as if it's a new file that just came in. And a new file, we've got to know some things. As soon as we get the file, we'll do a background interview because we need to know the story. We need to know what really happened. In addition to the story, we need to know the witnesses. Who's out there that we can talk to? What is the evidence that we can read or look at? Do we have videotapes? Do we have written statements? What do we have from other people that would help us? And then, of course, it's extremely important we get as much information as we can about the client. We need to know who they are, where they came from. Do they have a propensity for telling the truth? Do they have a propensity for lying? Are they firing on all cylinders or do the gears slip a little bit? You know, we, we need to know that and you get most of that through understanding the client and getting information about the client. So that's what we're going to do. And this morning we're going to start out with the basic story of what happened. So here's the basic story. Paul's been around the Mediterranean doing mission work, and while he's been out, he's been collecting money to take back to Jerusalem because of some poverty issues that have hit the Christians, the Jewish Christians, in Jerusalem. So the date is 57 AD, and Paul is bringing this money that he's collected for the impoverished church. Now, if you go to Jerusalem in 57 AD, we are 10 years away from the Jewish rebellion against Rome, where Rome comes in and basically destroys the temple and destroys Jerusalem. So that doesn't happen for 10 more years. So if you had gone to Jerusalem, very much what you would have seen are street scenes. The richer elite people lived higher up on the hill. And because garbage and sewage and everything flows downhill, the lower class lived downhill. That's the way the city was made. The temple is at the very top. And the temple that Herod had rebuilt uh, uh, um, or added to, if you will, the Herodian temple is a massive monumental site. It captures the attention of anyone remotely close to Jerusalem. Now we know something about the temple. 
And a lot of you may be thinking the temple is the place of sacrifices, etc. Yes, but the temple was much more than that. The temple was almost like a Swiss bank. It's where people took their money and deposited it. They put their valuables there. Not just Jews. Gentiles used it as a bank. This is an era where there wasn't a bank. There wasn't real, you know, Paul couldn't get the money and make a wire transfer to Jerusalem. He has to carry it. That's one reason travel was so precarious and banditry was so prevalent. Is because people had to carry around their valuables and their treasures. You couldn't FedEx it. You couldn't deposit it in the Bank of Athens and just write a check when you get to Jerusalem. They did not have that. You, so don't think, AT, why didn't he use his ATM card? He didn't have one. So he's got to carry this money back. Where is he going to put it? Where everyone else put the money? In the Swiss bank. Here. The temple. Here. That's where it goes. By the way, this is why when the Romans squashed the rebellion in the Jewish-Roman War of 67 to 70, this is why the Romans dismantled the temple almost stone by stone. They were looking for any of the hiding places of the, the booty. This is also one reason Jesus got so upset at the money changers at the temple. Because what had originally been a place of sacrifice in a house of God had turned into a bank. We know this from a lot of sources. One of the sources is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish fighter, a leader, a commander of troops in that Jewish-Roman war. But once the Jews were defeated, the Roman emperor liked Josephus so much Having captured him, he took, had, had Josephus pledge his allegiance to Rome and then took him off to Rome. And so Josephus lives past 100 A.D. writing histories of the Jewish people as a Jew in Rome. And we can read his histories and he recounts all of this information about the temple being a treasury, being a bank. Not only that, but once the war started and it was apparent that, that the temple might be in danger, priests smuggled out of Jerusalem a lot of the temple treasuries and a lot of the deposits. They hid them in caves around the Dead Sea. And almost half a century ago, a copper scroll was discovered. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, by and large, are parchment. They're animal skins, some papyrus, but it's, it's um, just writings like that. This, is, this was a copper scroll made out of copper for its enduring ability. And it identifies all of these temple treasures that had been taken from the temple and hidden in various locations so that they could be found after the war and people would not have lost their deposits. There is a host of treasure 
listed on the copper scroll that was ferreted it away from the temple before the temple was destroyed. But even with all of that, the temple still had so much booty in it that when Titus, who won that war for Rome, when Titus went back to Rome, they built an arch in his triumph to celebrate him. You can see that arch in Rome today. And on the inside of the arch, there's a relief of the soldiers carrying out booty that they had captured from the temple. And uh, I've got a clearer picture where it's, it's uh, they've used some Photoshop to help us catch all the detail. But you can see the menorah, the golden menorah that's being taken out and the trumpets and all this other booty that was being taken. Even with everything that had been removed and hidden away, there was still a ton that was left. So Paul goes back and Paul's got to get the, the, the money into the temple. Paul's got another problem in Jerusalem. Paul's reputation on the mission field had been someone who didn't teach people to abide by the law. Actually, that's not a fair complaint of Paul. Paul was speaking to Gentiles, and he didn't make Gentiles be Jewish. That's true. But Paul was not someone who totally lived disregarding the law. The problem is, Paul taught that the temple is now the body of Christ. It's Christ living in us. That's the meeting place. We don't have to do the sacrifices anymore. Christ did those sacrifice that counts. So there's no more sacrificial system. The problem is there was a temple tax that was assessed against every Jew, whether they lived in Jerusalem or Rome or Corinth or Galatia. Every Jew every year had to send back their two drachma tax to support the temple and the Jewish temple system. And if the idea is there that Paul is preaching against the temple, as my dad would say, that's when you quit preaching and went to meddling. Because now all of a sudden it's getting serious. It's, 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 we're talking about the pocketbook. I was going to pull out my billfold as an example, but I didn't bring it. Clearly lunch is on Becky today. So, so the temple is a is a is an important place but Paul is in a precarious situation going back to Jerusalem. So the church leaders sit down and they think how can we show that Paul is something a uh, uh, different than his reputation that precedes him. The solution that was decided was that Paul would would take four Jewish Christians who had taken a Nazarite vow That's generally a 30-day vow that says we're not going to drink any wine, we're not going to eat any grapes, we're not going to eat any raisins, we're not going to have our hair cut or shaved. 30 days. It's like no shave November, but you get nothing else either that's a fruit of the vine. And so the, the, the Nazarite vow, once it's done, you purified yourself, you went to the temple, you either did a sacrifice or a payment or something like that. So the, the goal was take these four men, have them go to the temple to purify themselves, Paul go with them and make a show out of Paul being the one who takes them there. He can purify himself before he goes in and he can pay for their Nazarite vow. 
showing he's putting money into the temple, it's also a good time for him to do his banking for the money for the church so that the church will have it to draw out as they need it. So Paul goes to the temple to do this. Now, in the temple, let's put a picture of the temple up here. In the temple, because the the, the temple's open for banking to everyone, Gentiles are allowed in the temple. But they're only allowed in this court of Gentiles, which is in the portico, the big open area, but before a small wall that you can see down at the base of where I've written Court of Gentiles. Got the same thing on this side. You've got that small wall, Court of Gentiles. And so the Gentiles can go there, but they cannot go any further. In fact, Josephus tells us that stones were erected that said if you go further, you're subject to being killed, executed. And the Romans would enforce, let the Jews enforce it, even if you were a Roman who went further. No Gentiles further. In part, this is security for the money. So the Romans were interested in this too. But Josephus wrote of that stone. Archaeologists have since found some of these stones. You can see one at the museum in Istanbul. I've put a little better graphic where I've put the Greek letters. Someone else did that. Put the Greek letters over the inscribed letters so you can see them. But here's the translation, my translation of it anyway. No outsider shall go inside the area surrounding and protecting the sanctuary. An outsider is a Gentile, someone who's not Jewish. Whomever is caught will have himself alone to blame for the following death. So within the framework of that, in the court of the Gentiles, you, you've, you've, you've got this layout. And Paul goes. Now, I want to make that a little bit smaller and show you up in this corner. Let me back out first. You see in the corner, this drawing, by the way, is not perfect. They've mislabeled parts of it. And so don't take this drawing and and live by it. All right. The fortress probably didn't intrude into it like that. But there were Roman barracks or the Antonia Fortress, which was written and built in dedication of Mark Antony. Um, the Antonia Fortress was at one corner of the uh, uh, um, temple. Realistically, even that picture is a little bit perhaps wrong. Archaeologists tend to think it may have just had one big tower, not four. There's a debate about that. There's a debate about whether or not there was a walkway across it or whether it was directly adjoined. But there is basically the Roman barracks. And that becomes important because Paul goes and he pays the, the vow and he, they follow the purification rites for seven days. But on the seventh day when they're in the temple, a bunch of Jews from Ephesus recognize Paul and they start saying, bad, bad, bad. This is the man that preaches against the temple and the law of Moses. And they had seen earlier Trophimus <clears throat> who was a Gentile Christian that must have returned with Paul. And they had seen him in the city with Paul, and so assumed that Paul had taken Trophimus past the the Gentile court. So they start telling everybody, Paul took a Gentile into the inner court, or inside the, the wall that's supposed to keep him out. And there's a riot that ensues. People are upset. Paul should be killed. This is Paul. He's trying to destroy the temple. Look, Jerusalem is a huge tourist mecca. Jerusalem population, 40,000. 
except during festivals when people come all the way in to celebrate at the temple. And then the population would swell from 40,000 to 250,000. That's the size of Lubbock, Texas. That's massive. Okay, Lubbock's not quite that big. <laughs> I was rounding up. Um, go tech. Uh, so, so you've got a massive influx of tourism. The idea that Paul and this Christian movement that's taking over a lot of Jews within Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of Jewish Christians in a city with the population of 40,000, that's very notable. And so the idea that Paul is teaching against the temple drives everybody crazy because it destroys the market. So the people are upset. They're, they're rioting and they're trying to kill Paul. All of the ruckus causes the tribune, who's the head Roman soldier dude in the Antonia fortress, he's aware of the rioting that's going on in the temple. And so he goes out there. He takes a couple of centurions. Centurions, the word century from the Latin, centurio. Yeah, it means 100. So a centurion was over a hundred soldiers. So the, the tribune gets a couple of centurions, gets a couple hundred soldiers. And they go out and wade through the riot to figure out what's going on. They grab Paul and they have to lift him up to get him out. And they start taking him back to the Roman barracks. When Paul says to the tribune in Greek... Can I, well, let's see, he's arrested, he's in chains. Can I address the people? And the tribune says, you speak Greek? And Paul says, yeah, I do. And the, 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 the centurion says, but aren't you that Egyptian terrorist? Now, we know from reading Josephus that three years earlier in 54 AD, there was an Egyptian terrorist who took a few thousand men, Josephus said uh, uh, he took uh, uh, 40,000, or, or 30,000, excuse me, 30,000. But in fact, uh, Acts tells us that the Egyptian had only taken uh, 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 4,000. And Acts is probably right. Scholars, even who don't believe in the Bible, believe that the Bible is right on this, and Josephus got it wrong. But don't knock Josephus. If we can go to the Elmo for a moment. In Greek writing, there we go. In Greek writing, that and that is the difference between, <laughs> that's the difference between 4,000 and 30,000. So Josephus just like, he just missed the bottom. Um, all right, back to the uh, PowerPoint. So Paul gets arrested. Paul says, can I address the people? The Roman soldier says, I thought you were this Egyptian terrorist. Oh, Josephus also tells us that the, 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 the Romans caught most of the terrorist men, but the Egyptian had escaped. So that's what, they, that's what the, the tribune thought. He thought he'd finally caught. I mean, he's thinking, raise. You know, I caught the terrorists that got away. 
And then Paul starts talking Greek and he's like, oh. And Paul says, no, I'm not an Egyptian terrorist. He says, I am a Jew. And when you read it in the Greek, it's emphatic. It's like he's shouting it. I'm a Jew. I'm a citizen of Cilicia, of Tarsus. And that's not some small, insignificant little town. It's a real one. And the tribune says, oh. And Paul says, so can I address the people, please? Tribune says, okay. And, and the way Luke tells it, Paul stands there. And it's in Acts 21, 39 and into Acts 22. And Paul reaches out his hand. That's the orator stance. So Paul assumes the orator stance. The crowd gets quiet. You know, they didn't have TV. They'd listen to orations. That's part of their entertainment. He assumes the orator stance. The crowd gets quiet. They're going to hear Paul. And Paul starts telling them what happened. And Paul says, you check me out. You check out my credentials. I was the prize student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel took one student at a time. I was the one. I was the chief prosecutor for the high priest and the chief priest. I prosecuted these people of the way. Hodos in the Greek, it means road or, or way. And that's what Paul was calling the Christians. They were just, that was the way. As, as the prophet Isaiah had said in the Old Testament, you know, that one would come prepare the way of the Lord. These are people of that way. And so Paul says, I prosecuted him. I was there. I held the coats when Stephen was stoned, killed. I was off to Damascus with letters from the high priest for me to go arrest all of the Jewish Christians in Damascus. But on the way, a bright light appears. I hear this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, I fell to the ground. I said, who are you? I'm Jesus. And you may think you're arresting and killing and, and hurting these people, but you're really, you're persecuting me. God takes his people very personally. Someone messes with you, they're messing with God. I wonder how many people would mess with, I wonder how we'd mess with people if we knew that. We were thinking that. Anyway, side sermon. Um, so Paul says, I'm on my way and it blinded me and I had to be led and I was taken in and I was met by this, this holy man. His name's Ananias, a Jewish Christian, but he's very holy. You go ask anybody, they're going to tell you Ananias, holy guy. And Ananias meets me and the scales fell from my eyes and Ananias says to me, okay, man, go and be baptized. God's calling you. God's going to send you out with a message to the Gentiles. And when Paul said that, the whole crowd erupts. Because that's what Paul was doing wrong in their mind. Oh, yeah, the Gentiles. He's just making an excuse. This is why, as lawyers, we tell our clients, shut up, don't say anything. People are picking up rocks and dirt and they're pelting him and they're throwing it at him and they're just, they're, they're going at him. And, and the tribune has to haul him in. And the tribune says to his soldiers, says, uh, uh, look, just flog him and, and find out what he knows. 
we got to get at the root of this. I'm sure the Tribune didn't understand it because Luke tells us that Paul was addressing the crowd in Hebrew. So it would have been that word could mean Aramaic. The crowd probably spoke both. But the Tribune didn't. It's gobbledygook to him. So Paul goes in there. He's mistaken for the terrorist. He gives his defense to the crowd, and it goes absolutely nowhere. So the centurion orders Paul flogged. Now, a flogging, that's not like the whippings that you'd get at synagogue, which Paul had endured gladly. A flogging could kill you. The flogging was done with a flogger. It's actually called a flagella, but we get the word flog from it. The flagella's got these spikes at the end with pieces of glass and everything else. And when you got, they'd stretch you out between poles and they would, it would rake the skin and the muscle off of your body. People died from that. And right before they do it, as they're stretching Paul out, Paul says, is it legal to do this to a Roman citizen? Knowing full well it's not, that's called a rhetorical question. And the centurion says, wait, are you, a, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, uh-huh. And you know the penalty for doing that to a Roman citizen? Is you get it done to you. They could even kill you for doing that to a Roman citizen. So the centurion says, uh, let, let's stop, uh, get the tribune. We, we got to get this thing sorted out. So, so the Roman authorities are there with Paul and they're talking about it and and then, and, and you know, what, what, how'd you get your citizenship? What did it cost you? And we don't know if Paul was wearing his little citizen tablet. Do you know what those were called? A diploma. And that's what would show your citizenship. It would also show your release from military duty. It, was, it would do both. A diploma. Diploma we get from it. So we don't know if Paul had his diploma, but he had his proof of citizenship somehow, or he had him nervous enough to where they just took it for granted. Most Roman citizens would carry it with them. You never knew when you needed it. So Paul, he does this, and, 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 and in the process of this, they take him down. Then the next day, the, the tribune says, okay, we got to get to the root of this, but I can't do it because I'm already nervous that by putting him in chains, I'm going to get in trouble. I didn't know he was a Roman citizen. Sure wish he'd have told me that. We had a dialogue, blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, he takes Paul in front of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin comes from a Greek word. It had been set up a hundred years earlier, 75 years earlier, by the ruling authority so that the Jews would have some committees or councils to rule themselves, and the different towns had their Sanhedrins. In Jerusalem was the great Sanhedrin. There were about 70 or so members, and the different crimes required a different size Sanhedrin. If you were just in trouble over something small, you could do it with a Sanhedrin of three people. But for the big major crimes and death penalty crimes, they required a Sanhedrin of, see, the 21 or 23, depending upon how you read the rabbinical sources. And so, this Sanhedrin gets together, and Paul is called upon to make his defense there. Now, the lawyer in me is saying, don't say anything. Let me get you out of this. But no, not Paul, because he's not worried about getting out of it. All he wants to do is talk about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. So Paul sits there and proceeds to say, and Paul realizes 
that this Sanhedrin makeup has both Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not. So Paul just starts saying, hey, I'm here because I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of Pharisees, and I believe in life after death. And Jesus appeared to me after he was dead, and uh, uh, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, and that's why I'm talking to people. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are, well, what's wrong with that? And the Sadducees are, well, of course that didn't happen. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees start going at it, fighting their fight over whether or not you can be resurrected. That's like putting a, a Donald Trump supporter in the same room with a Hillary Clinton supporter and just watching them fight it out. Or taking a dehumidifier and putting it in the same room with a humidifier and watching them fight it out. I mean, you're just going to see what happens. And the big ruckus erupts, so the Tribune's got to take Paul out of that. Takes him back to the barracks. He's under arrest, and that night the Lord comes to him, and the Lord says, Be courageous and confident, because as you testified about me in Jerusalem in the same way, you must also testify about me in Rome. And with that confidence, Paul went to sleep. He didn't really need a lawyer. God was in control. So with that as the setup, that's the story. I gave you a whole bunch of extra data in there. You can read about it somewhere, but here are your three points for home. And I hope you'll come back next week because next week I'll start my interview of Paul. So points for home. First, they seized Paul, or no, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. This is what Ananias said to Paul when Paul got to Damascus. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. Now, what are you waiting for? Rise. Be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on his name. What a marvelous instruction. Because it all starts with a relationship. Paul's road to Damascus experience was a meaningful experience and he called on the name of Jesus and was baptized into, into his name. He didn't quit being a Pharisee. He didn't quit being a Jew. He was a believer that Jesus was Messiah. And there he was. Point for home number two. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. Cohort's the whole group. Then the tribune came upon, came up, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That's hands and feet. Paul's a Christian. He's a, a rabbi. He's an apostle. He's a teacher. He's a minister. He's done marvelous things. He's brought back a collection for the poor. He didn't do anything wrong. And he gets arrested and he gets bound with chains. Because bad things still happen to us. I'd love to tell you become a Christian and you'll never have another problem in your life. But I would be lying to you and I would be lying to our faith. Bad things happen to people. That's the course of this world. The difference is we have a God who walks through it with us who strengthens us and gives us direction and protects us. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, 
take courage as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You must also testify in Rome. We walk in God's hands regardless of what's coming. As my brother-in-law Kevin Roberts says, it's not a problem, it's an opportunity. We just have to see it that way and see what God wants to do through us. So that's our start of our legal study for this new client, Paul. I hope you'll come back with me next week. Can I say a blessing over you? Father, I ask you to bless this study. I ask you to bless uh, my friends and my family and, and those listening to this message today. I pray that we'll be encouraged by Paul's faith. I pray that we'll gain strength from his fortitude. And I pray that regardless of what enemies, this world, situations, facts, throw at us, we will have the the, the comfort and security of knowing you have a plan for us and that we exist in your care. All that we do, Father, we do in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.